Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry right here on KOPN.org, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 FM. Thanks for listening with us today. Uh, I'm your host, Dick Dalton. And each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out, whatever that means to them and to you. <laughs> so today, this is a recorded interview. I'm uh, south of Columbia, right along the Missouri River with a, an old friend, Eric Geis. Uh, I could introduce him as a farmer or a singer-songwriter, bass player, a manufacturing guru, <laughs> a house builder, a number of things. But uh, hi, Eric. Great to be here today. Thank you, Dick. Wow. So nice of you to come all the way out here just to see what's going on. <laughs> it's nice to have people uh, and old friends especially come and, uh, these days. I don't get out much, to, you know. Just one of those one of those things in these times. Well, you've been pretty busy. I, I drove up and I see uh, footings for a, a new house. Uh, finally, I think you and Marnie are are putting together a, a dream house, aren't you? For your <laughs> days when <laughs> what is it when when we can't walk other than be wheeled around we have our dream house yeah was a flat floor yeah. with wide doorways is, is, a, is a good one for that yeah to, for us to be building a, a dream home at our age uh, is a, a pretty wild adventure and we're thankful that we can get out there and uh, groove with the with the some of the youngsters uh, out there on the on the building site, we're doing pretty good holding our own and learning every day and making creative decisions and making eco-friendly decisions, which is always what we kind of try to do. I was digging some sweet potatoes earlier today before Dick showed up to, to visit and interview me. And it occurred to me that this is the 50th anniversary today of my first organic garden harvest oh. uh, in Boone County. And so in 19, the late summer, of, through the summer, but into the autumn of, of 1971, when I lived on Rock Quarry Road and was fortunate to be able to garden uh, right along Clear Creek, which eventually makes its way uh, over to the Rock Bridge, Devil's Icebox area. But mm -hmm. uh, I mean... And I was digging my soil today thinking, man, when I came here from Santa Cruz, California in 1971 with my wife, Diana, and my son, Justin, it was really to garden. And I was lucky to be able to go to MU uh, and get paid by, by GI Bill money to go and take some fun classes and accidentally get a BA at Mizzou. But uh, <laughs> meanwhile, really what I was focused on was learning how to garden well and uh, I was very dedicated to that, and I was the manure king and the compost kid and all kind of a lot of other stuff that, all, lo and behold, here I am back in Missouri again in Boone County for the last 11 years full-time, and 
I'm still digging beautiful dirt that I'm blessed to have at my disposal. You know, I was at your house on Rock Quarry Road with Diane and, and Justin, and I think maybe Diane was pregnant at the time with your next child. Shashi, my daughter, who's uh, and, now 49. And you had this huge field right across the road, and you had these big uh, teepee-like structures with vines growing up on them, and, uh, you know, the real deal, the big beard, and, uh, I mean, we kind of looked like each other at the time. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's when I met you. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember you being there, for sure. I, I can't remember how I even got the invite, or we bumped into Who each other we knew somewhere it was, else. We probably... I'm going to guess that we somehow knew each knew one of us knew somebody who knew yeah. the other one. And, yeah. you know, the, the connections in those days, that brotherhood, sisterhood of the of the Rainbow Garden cult was, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a thing. I mean, I'm still friends with uh, Rick, Rick Goodman, you know, from the early 70s. And mm. he was a, still trying to do some organic gardening and heating his house with firewood and um, my joke was, many years ago, before some TV shows kind of co-opted my language, but I won't get into that, but I <laughs> called myself Amishish about 10 or 15 years ago, and I do have Mennonite, German Mennonite, Pennsylvania immigrant farmer roots mm-hmm. that I think are still somewhat at work in my in my daily existence. Yeah, you wrote a song called Ohio, didn't you? Yeah. Yes, I'm still playing it. Yeah, and and that talks about, uh, what, 1730, uh, some German ancestors came over and and settled in Pennsylvania or somewhere? Well, uh, you're close. Um, I wrote a song called My Great-Great-Grandpa Migrated to America, and... (laughs) That's the song where my, yes, my fifth or sixth or seventh great-grandfather came on a ship from Germany to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1725 at the age of 21. And he was a farmer and a weaver at that young age. But mm-hmm. he, was, he came with his two brothers to get away from uh, religious persecution as being a Mennonite. And mm-hmm. so that's where I have deep Mennonite roots uh, in Pennsylvania. But the Ohio Mm -hmm. song came about um, during an all-night jam session in Big Bear Lake, California with my two longtime musician buddies. And I said to the guitar player, give me a little country. (laughs) And he started playing. And I made the whole song up. And it was inspired by my little bit that I knew about my Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania German immigrant roots in Pennsylvania. And having grown up there to age 16 uh, and relating with my mom's family, who is that descended from that original Johann Fretz. He also was a weaver, as I said. And so that, the song My Great Grandpa was about him. But Ohio was about like the 1790s when Ohio was the new frontier. Pennsylvania Mm. was already kind of settled and Mm. getting a little crowded. And Uh. So the idea of going to Ohio in a Conestoga wagon, I went to Conestoga High School as a you kid did. in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so that kind of all just came out one, one night in 68 uh, in an all-night get-together. And 
I'm still playing it just like we recorded it that <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah, I've been to, uh, you, you had a few, uh, is it birthday parties or spring parties? What do you call them? Uh, it, the big spring party. Uh, yeah. And it started in sometime in the 70s as Marnie's birthday party. Her birthday's uh, April 30th. And so mm-hmm. it was a big springtime celebration, really. Mm-hmm. And she and I started doing it together. It had been going on and off for a long time. And we started doing it uh, together in the early t- uh, 2000s. And mm-hmm. we did quite a few years uh, consecutively and had local live music and a humongous bonfire and um, potluck food that was always great. And the last one we had was was May, early May of 2019, and we mm-hmm. think we had a couple hundred people here. I think I was, Marcia and I were here for that one and uh, met a variety of folks. And Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, the crowd. And we always, we always uh, loved having people of all ages. In fact, a couple days ago, some friends of ours were out, and the son is seven, and he, he was at our party when he was two weeks old. And I, I just love that. And the year that he was here, that he was two weeks old, we also had a, a, a Marty's mom was like 89, and another friend of ours' mom was something like 92. And they were all sitting over here. The baby was on a blanket, and the old folks were there. And I was yeah. just touched me very deeply because it was such a big family vibe mm-hmm. uh, that I just love. And that was, we're going to do at least one more. Oh, we're going to do okay. a housewarming. There you go. When the house is done, and it, it may coincide with my 80th, which is 2024. Mm-hmm. And uh, all so, right, 80th. Yeah, we are the same age today, but I think you're going to be ahead of me in another <laughs> month or two. Yeah, in January, <laughs> I'm going to jump to the to the seven eight. 78, you know, RPM, yeah. <laughs> which I th- think I'm thankful to be still spinning at a fairly high rate of speed in spite of uh, yeah, you are. The, the ravages of time. I, they've, I've been pretty dang lucky. But those Mennonites back in my mom's side of the family, they were, even in the 1700s, they were living into their late 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. And my mom's mom lived to 101. So, mm-hmm. Yep. You know, if you made it past the first 10 years and an infection didn't get you, yeah, and you had reasonable health and food, you could live out your 70, 80 years plus. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, yeah, the, I've, the historical song thing is I never intentionally did that. And then when over the years that we lived here, we got to know a man named Archie Lee Sapp, who's from this area. He died in 2016 at 93, but he was born here on our property in 1923. Oh. And then his family lost the place 13 years when he was 13 years old in 36 because cholera got his dad was a hog farmer and cholera devastated the hog uh, herd. And then they couldn't raise hmm. hogs here for at least five years. That was the only way to avoid a recurrence of an epidemic. So. They left, and then he ended up buying the place back and raised. There at times there was fifteen kids in this house oh, wow. with the two mom and dad. Mm-hmm. They were six biological and up up to nine. Not all at once, all the time, but up mm-hmm. to nine uh, kids that they were helping to raise uh, for. I think it was the wife's brother. 
So this was a wild place, and I, getting to know Archie, learning the history of, of going back at least into the early 1900s of our place that we have mm -hmm. here, that 350 acres that we bought that Marnie's been on since 1973. Yeah, 73, wow. And I, I went in 77, I went, I went back to California to play rock and roll again and with the same two guys. Mm -hmm. And I was gone 33 years. And so now I, and I've been back since 2010 after I retired from what I was doing. And I, I call myself a semi-local, <laughs> even though I've been here six years and then now 11, yeah. 17 total. And f very fabulous to have friends from the first uh, venture that I had here and, and still came back to knowing people here. Yeah, in 2010, and so was your was your military time right after high school, or was it well close? I kind of I had to go to I had to go become a surfer in California. So that's how you got to California the first time. <laughs> I, I I just I basically uh, I graduated high school in living in Deerfield, Illinois, a suburb north of Chicago and close to Lake Michigan. My dad got a transfer. I was there junior, senior year. So Conestoga High School, farewell. Uh, <laughs> you know, upper crust, uh, <laughs> Chicago suburbs. And so I had a best friend in, in junior, senior year who had grown up in L.A. Uh -huh. And so he had these tale, these adventure stories <laughs> of being a kid growing up in L.A. that were just mind-blowing. And surfing was getting some media attention as a, as a kind of a up and coming subculture. And, right. You know, there was actually a lot of fair, like a lot of things like rock and roll, you know, it was a lot of sort of negative attention about, well, they don't, they don't cut their hair and then whatever, you know, it's like, <laughs> and they got nothing else to do but surf. It's like, get a well, job, get a job, get a job. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, as soon as we got out of high school in 61, we hit the road and went and drove out Route 66 to L.A. and bummed around and surfed so, for the first time. Is and, that when the band started? No, the band didn't start till I, I... So that was 60... That was way earlier than... Oh, 61. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 61 is yeah. when I made my first journey to California from the Midwest mm -hmm. and then of course you know like it's it was the goal it's the golden state it was mesmerizing in mm -hmm. the Pacific Ocean I'd grown up going uh, from uh, from a, the Philadelphia suburbs we did vacations on the east coast you know mm -hmm. on the, the shore we'd go to the shore Rehoboth Beach Delaware mm -hmm. or Maryland or whatever it was really groovy sort of out of the way not com non-commercialized beach resorts or mm -hmm. towns that we got to and what was it all about it was all about being in the ocean you know mm -hmm. and so yeah. i was kind of already an ocean lover and then the whole surf scene and then rock and roll and all that sort of bubbling to the surface and i just had to I had to get to california and i went and became a cal pennsylvanian i guess <laughs> and then i was hooked you know and then i joined the air force soon after that managed to get stationed in, in Riverside, California uh, in 62 mm -hmm. uh, as a medic, as an x-ray technician. And 
for the year and a half that I was there, that's every minute I wasn't on the job and working in the hospital, I was surfing. Mm-hmm. It was about an 80-mile drive from Riverside, where I was, to Huntington mm-hmm. Beach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the site of the recent oil spill. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I got to really, that was when I was stationed there is when I really got to surf. And then I, then I got transferred to south, southeastern Italy, and that's when I started my first rock and roll band was in Italy oh. in 65. I, some other guys were kind of playing a little bit together and nobody could, nobody was really a singer. And I thought I was a singer. I, I guess I still do, but <laughs> I am not sure <laughs> at first my debut, I remember is being pretty horrific, but um, uh, we, yeah, we put a band together called manslaughter and the eyewitnesses. And we ended up, winning the bass talent contest, singing Twist and Shout by the Beatles, which, of course, was really uh, by the Isley Brothers, but they the Beatles had covered it. But uh, <laughs> And then we got gigs at Little Towns, and we played at the beach, and wow. we played at the Airmen's Club and the NCO off, uh, Club, and we play, actually played a party at the Officers, a pool party at the Officers Club that was a riot, and... Um, <laughs> We we had gigs. We were getting gigs. We were getting paid in 1965. In the Air Force. It, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had... Well, I was also the base theater in, in Italy. I had the job as the base movie theater janitor. Mm. And I was making a little bit of money playing rock and roll. And then I also had a, a little uh, black market thing <laughs> going on that just seems so natural that, you know, I saw other people introduce me to it and they said, oh yeah, the Italians, they'll, you take your, you buy all the, all the uh, American cigarettes and alcohol that you can get on your ration card and go sell it for big, big lira. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) well, the sordid past of, I'm afraid so, of my guest today, Eric (laughs) Black Marketeer. Eric Geis, uh, that's spelled G-I-E-S. That is, that is the way it's spelled. Yeah, and that's uh, that wasn't the name that came over in seventeen twenty-five. No, that's my that's my was my mom's side of the family, mm-hmm. and that was Fretz. Uh huh. Is and I think that has even been anglicized. The mm-hmm. Fretz might have been something a little more German, but yeah. And I think because Mennonite, probably originally Swiss, hmm. and then Swiss German, and then mm-hmm. emigrating to, mm-hmm. you know, on a ship to to Penn's Woods, as they called it at times. You know, mm-hmm. William Penn was quite the heck of a Quaker. And so the Geist came along and married your mom. And, and supposedly, yes, and my dad's from over uh, western Pennsylvania, around Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. I have heard from some of... Uh, the cousins on that side that that his side of the family was actually German Mennonites as well. Oh, so wow. uh-huh. that's pretty interesting. I haven't had the chance to trace that back as as well as on my mom's side, but mm-hmm. so I, which is probably good because I can't write another song about <laughs> my Mennonite ancestors. I've kind of I've done been there, done that. Well, you're uh, you're. Band in in Italy. Did did you just uh, buy instruments when you were in Italy? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like so. I'd heard Dylan for a while and the Birds, and then I started getting into the Rolling Stones, and 
these guys were playing guitar. So I, I, somewhere I had a guitar and I started to learn a little something. I think you could even check out an acoustic electric guitar at the bass, whatever, recreation booth. You mm-hmm. could go there and check stuff out. I think I checked out a, an amp and a guitar. And I started fiddling around with that. And, I, and this, there was a jazz musician, really quite good, the station there. And mm. I, I, he showed me a couple of things on real simple, basic stuff. And mm-hmm. then we had gigs, you know. So we had, <laughs> it was like, and then since we already had two guitar players, um, I had bought an electric guitar in the town of Brindisi and had it just for a week or two and was playing it. And then it kind of dawned on all of us that, Really, I should have bought a bass guitar. So I went back and managed to return it, exchange it, and buy a, a little crummy little four-string bass guitar and became a bassist basically then in 1965. Huh. Uh, be, out of just uh, necessity, made sense. So we had two guitars, bass, drums, and I was the singer. Mm-hmm. I was just singing whatever whatever Bo Diddley songs or mm. whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and just went from there. And uh, the war in Vietnam was just uh, heating up, wasn't it, it? Yes, it was, and we didn't really hear. Mu- I didn't hear much about it. Yeah, uh, until I got my honorable discharge from the Air Force and mm-hmm. came back. Yeah, uh, in I came back. Christmas of '65 is when I I got out and came mm-hmm. back and hung around my parents' place over in Florissant. Briefly, while I, my VW van that I bought right from the factory in Hamburg was on a boat coming over to Newark from Hamburg or somewhere, and Frankfurt or Hamburg, whatever one's the port. And so I had to hang around the St. Louis suburbs till I got my VW van, mm-hmm. having no clue. This was Christmas of 65, New Year's 66. Who knew that vehicle would become such an iconic <laughs> countercultural <laughs> symbol, you know, or image yeah uh, yeah the vw van and then and, and it was it turned out to be I, I the band we had in italy i never we didn't have to really carry gear anyplace but mm-hmm. once i ended up down in la in 66 playing music there it was like wow i got a van i can carry the amps and the drums and everything yeah <laughs> it all worked out yeah uh, just by accident i'm not even sure why i wanted to get that that particular VW minivan or microbus or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we got ours in uh, 72 out uh, in Columbia. It was at, a, I think, a junkyard. But the the VW bus was had been hand-painted a, a kind of a limey green oh all over. And it was just a rough, you know, hand-painted job. <laughs> and I, I wrote on the front uh, H-O-S-A-N-N-A because Anna was uh, my wife at the time. Uh-huh, so sure. Hosanna. And uh, that that VW bus took us all the way to the East Coast for a trip to her family and all the way to the West Coast to visit old friends in Oregon. That's something. And it was an old bus at the time and you got it in 72 but was it already an old oh it was an old vehicle vehicle. yeah yeah yeah. well if you took care if you 
didn't push them too hard. You know, they were air-cooled for the longest time. Mm. Mine was. Taught me how to change, or clean the valves or whatever you do under the back there yeah. or something. Adjust the valve. Keep the valves adjusted. Mm-hmm. Make sure you got plenty of, keep the oil changed. Mm-hmm. And just don't run it too hard. I mean, even though they were designed and built back when the Autobahn was becoming a thing in Germany, I think I tore mine up more than once, blew the motor on it a couple of times. And I think it was just driving those L.A. freeways <laughs> at like 75 was a little beyond what those were really created to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that hill that comes from the valley up a long, long straight hill that comes up and, and then goes down into the L.A. area? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know the name of it and it's not important, but... Yeah, I, I've I've been over that a, a, a bunch of times. Anna and I were—is that the one they call the grapevine by any chance? Probably so. Anna and I are driving down from Oregon on five, and uh-huh. we, we need to go over that road to get to my brother's place down in San Diego. And we hear—I don't know how—but somehow I hear or see a sign that there's snow, and something about you better get change or something. Huh? I pull off. Service station had one set of chains left that fit the VW. Bottom, drove over and started up the grapevine, and it was a line of trucks and cars stopped, just stalled. They couldn't move. Pulled in a little parking lot, put on the chains, pulled out of the parking lot, passed all of that line of cars, <laughs> just as happy as a. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, the universe was. It was all, all in in in. in uh, it, it was just there for yeah. us. It was just like, how can this be? But that's that is totally uh, <laughs> one of those harmonic divination moments yes. where it's just like, this is happening, and it's really sort of beyond my understanding how all these things could be working together yeah. in in this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you gotta love it. Gotta love it. Yeah. So uh, you were in uh, L.A. Did you go back to Santa Cruz? Just real quickly, the chronology. I, I got out of the Air Force in the 65. I'd already been in a band. And a friend of mine who I'd met in the Air Force, it was my surfing buddy when ba- I was back in Riverside in 63. Uh, in fact, I, this, I hope this isn't a tasteless tidbit, but um, Kennedy was assassinated and then there was a a national day of mourning the next day and we didn't have to work mm-hmm. and so we looked at each other and went let's go surfing and yeah. we drove to Huntington Beach and went surfing and we appreciated we were sad about Kennedy being killed and all of that but mm-hmm. the joy of surfing was sort of permeated our our daily existence mm-hmm. for the couple of year year and a half that we were there so that guy he was a chaplain's assistant and we buddied up we stayed friends. We met people in Long Beach, and he kind of stayed in touch with them. And he was originally from Seattle, Yelm, Washington, actually, a little farm town. Well, his brother was playing guitar in a band in the Seattle area then in 65, 66, mm-hmm. that was working, making money, and they needed a lead singer. Mm-hmm. So after I got my VW van at the Newark port and mm-hmm. said goodbye to my folks, I drove across the country, saw some folks in L.A., and then went to Seattle and auditioned mm-hmm. for this band called the Page Boys. Hmm. And they wore Page Boy outfits, which was really corny and hilarious. 
it was the days of Paul Revere and the Raiders. And yeah. there was a bunch of Seattle bands that were kind of coattailing uh, mm. the Revere success by having a theme <laughs> Dawn and the Good Times. They all dressed in top hats and tails and rode to their gigs in a hearse. You know, uh, the Page Boys, we dressed in these goofy little tights with beetle boots and feathered caps. And it was really <laughs> silly. But they were really good, good young musicians. And I got the job and went to junior college uh, in Auburn, Evergreen Community College. Went to junior college during the day. And on weekends, we'd jump in the van with our equipment and go to play college dances and parties and roller rinks and Soap Lake and Ephrata, Washington and Walla Walla and Portland and, you know, played clubs and this and that. But we were pretty much had gigs every single weekend for the six months that I was up there. So Mm -hmm. I was keeping my chops up. I really wasn't playing much guitar or bass, but I, because that was all covered, but I was singing, Mm -hmm. playing tambourine, a little harmonica. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cover songs you know but cover songs that we liked and then I went to LA and went back to surfing met my wife Diane and then met these two guys John and Sterling that became the band Space in LA and then again later uh, when we reformed in in, uh, 77 we became sort of evolved into what became the humans uh, for a few years in -hmm. in Santa Cruz so Mm -hmm. So I was in Long Beach, California for about five years, and that's where my son was born in in 67, and my wife Diane was from there, and I met those two guys, and we we rocked out around L.A. and (laughs) tried to get a record deal and opened for Ike and Tina Turner and the Allman Brothers and Alice Cooper and, uh, you know, a bunch of, played with uh, co-headline, I mean, played with the Grateful Dead, we... We played with Little Feet, and we did a nine-month residency in a place called the Temple of the Rainbow on Sunset Strip in Silver Lake District of L.A., and that was a yoga-oriented, drug rehab, organic juice bar, rock and roll club, live-in uh, residency program that uh, they were running, and they had these East Coast guys that were getting off drugs running this business. And every week for nine months, every weekend, us and another band called Messiah mm-hmm. played for this cult following, and we would alternate sets at opposite ends of this giant room, wow. right off, right on the corner of Sunset right. Boulevard, and yeah. and and you know got to you know play some other gigs like mm-hmm. we I said we did we played we played open for Taj Mahal did. Did some recordings that I still have versions of, you know, demo tapes, and almost got a deal with Elektra Records when the doors were huge or happening, starting to be huge for them. And were you writing some of your own songs by this time? Well, when I met these two guys, Sterling and John, in sixty the summer '66, they had been playing together for three or four years as sidemen in successful surf guitar bands. Mm-hmm. Sterling, who is now playing a Stratocaster and writing songs in 66, he had been a grown-up playing saxophone. And so, and then John, an amazing guitar player, they were playing with professional bands like the Challengers and mm-hmm. Eddie and the Showman, and they knew the Turtles before they made it big and knew all these people. They were part of the South Bay, like Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, mm-hmm. uh, that whole 
beach area, you know, mm-hmm. was way big into surf surf music, and Dick Dale was the reigning king of the surf guitar, and mm-hmm. it was a whole scene. So they'd come out of that together and as sidemen, and they started playing original Sterling's original songs. Mm-hmm. And when I joined them mm-hmm. on bass and vocals, they were launching out into all original territory, mm-hmm. and I had hadn't written a song in, yeah. yet in my life, but mm-hmm. being with them and performing Sterling songs and singing backup harmonies on his songs and working on the arrangements. And I was basically a beginning bass player. And I listened back to those tapes and I'm like, how the heck? I don't even know how I did that. I I don't even recognize that. Who was that guy? He was just completely winging it. And I guess maybe he was naturally born to do that because it there was no pre-thought or learning or training. It was just like, go for it. I could tell what key we certainly knew what we agreed on what key we were in, and I. <laughs> but it was pretty complicated music that we were doing. This guy Sterling Storm was mm. was writing what I was called compositions as much mm-hmm. as they were songs, and he sang lead on everything and mm-hmm. very poetic avant-garde lyrics and mm. crazy arrangements and really pretty wild stuff. So when when people liked us back then, when they became fans, they really did like us because it was what we were doing was completely unique. Yeah. And um, at the Temple of the Rainbow, it cost a dollar to get in. <laughs> the two bands would split the, the door at the end of the night. And I remember we, you know, we'd each get like $6 or something. <laughs> and then we'd rehearse. I was also still going to school on the GI Bill at the University of California, Irvine, before that Long Beach City College where I got a, some kind of AA degree that I still never got the paper on, but, but I was playing rock and roll and, mm-hmm. you know, was married and had a, a young son and yeah. was paying the bills by my wife was a hairdresser doing, doing that thing. And I, I was paying, you know, doing my share by getting paid to go to school. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. that was very, uh, it was kind of almost like be, you know, some sort of, a grant to do art you know yeah yeah really. <laughs> i figured up i'm taking advantage of this so yeah. yeah we were a very hard-working foursome with the drummer mm-hmm. that we had we we had a full-time rehearsal space and we it was like a job yeah for us we got together and and wrote and rehearsed and recorded as a full-time job yeah. and then the discipline and yeah that lasted till we moved to santa cruz as a band in 1970 and tried living together, and we'd been together since 66, and mm-hmm. went into 1970 a ways, and living together didn't work. It just, mm-hmm. it just, mm-hmm. uh, other things were going on. There was, in Santa Cruz was a beautiful place, and we loved it, but there was not a lot of opportunities professionally mm-hmm. to perform. I remember we played at University of California, Santa Cruz, which had a bunch of, had five different colleges in that university up in the Redwoods, and they, uh, we got to open for Commander Cody, who just recently passed away. Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. We, I've got a CD of the tape <laughs> of the hour and a half set that we played wow. opening for them, and the, the crowd loved it. We were having a blast playing a bunch of really wild rock and roll that nobody'd ever heard before, and the crowd loved it. And then Commander Cody came on and rocked real hard doing his thing i mean he he made it to the level that he did because he was they were they were really darn good and Mm -hmm. were writing some 
quite moving pieces of music. Mm -hmm. Cheeseburger, side order, or fries. I mean, you can't <laughs> argue with that. Title. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that lasted till 1970. I was in contact with my sister who was living in our house on Rock Quarry Road then oh. telling me she was my youngest of three younger sisters the mm -hmm. one I was closest to she'd lived in Long Beach for a while with us and she'd also traveled up into into the Pacific Northwest with my wife and son and I uh, when the band was on sort of a summer 1970 we were on a summer excursion to up and down the west coast looking for somewhere to light you know mm. and playing gigs in portland and seattle mm. and played the sky river music festival open for jesse colin young and that just happened because we were at a campfire in the olympic national rainforest campground and started talking to some people and they said hey we're producing yeah we're producing this rock festival There's, we're expecting forty thousand people and i said hey we want to play and they said okay and we played <laughs> It was for something. The universe was there. Yeah, yeah, that was, and we, so we camped there for four days, and yeah. uh, the only pop festival I've ever been to was the mm -hmm. one I played. Yeah, and then you came back to your sister's house. Yes, she kept, you know, telling us how beautiful it was, and the seasons, and the sunsets, and the weather, and the beauty of nature. And I, I had already been gardening a little bit in my backyards in Long Beach, and. Mm -hmm stuff and and uh, was interested already in growing food and mm -hmm. was doing it a little bit you know had tomato patch or whatever and so the band thing was stressful not working mm -hmm. there's nowhere to play we couldn't seem to even get together and and rehearse when we were living together when we mm -hmm. lived you know an hour apart it, we'd always make a day of it you know so it just was it just had kind of somehow run its course so mm -hmm. Diane and I just got in the VW van with everything, everything that we owned in it. I got sold mm -hmm. everything else, sold my surfboard, mm -hmm. and brought my bass guitar, and mm -hmm. off we went to, ended up at Rock Quarry Road. And my sister was working at the Derwiner Schnitzel <laughs> on I Business 70 in Columbia. We knew that. You know, you, there was no phone. You didn't call people or yeah. you wrote them postcards or something. So we just sure we just pulled ten stakes and, and and drove here, and thought she might be at work that day. And we drove to the to go window, and drove up in our VW van. And I there it was my sister working at the window. And I said, "We have two kraut dogs with extra onions," which we were vegetarians, so that was another sort of you know level of the joke. And my sister just looked at us with her mouth and eyes wide open and just shrieked. <laughs> She probably they probably called nine one one now if, if that same incident took yeah, place. But right. We you know we got a you know we got a an incident here. Yeah. Uh, what's your what's your emergency? But anyway, <laughs> she shrieked and freaked out, and the other her fellow employees, the, everybody's mind was completely blown. And so we kind of moved in with her and did our first organic garden the spring mm -hmm. April of nineteen seventy one, and it, the rest is all. Compost and composted <laughs> history. Well, we're going to get to a little bit more of that. Uh, my guest today on Glocal News and Social Artistry is Eric Geis. Uh, we're at his home here south of Columbia along the Missouri River, uh, just over about a quarter of a mile, maybe? 
less, I, less than we that. always say the river's a mile away. We're on the east edge of the river bottom, and although the river used to be right over here a long time ago, and especially in the days of Lewis and Clark, it was right <laughs> over here. It's right over there now. It's it's kind of moved its channel somewhat. So yeah, it's except I, for 2019, it was right down the hill here. It was here again. It was here again in our yard. We had. We had painted turtles laying eggs <laughs> in our front yard on the edge of the river. <laughs> yeah. So, and that happened in in uh, was it ninety three? Yeah, was that, that was ninety three as well. And you weren't here then. My my wife my Marnie was wife Marnie was here mm-hmm. and she stayed here at the house. The power went out. There was no phone, no road, no levee, mm-hmm. and Back then, they, nobody had four-wheelers, which we mm-hmm. were lucky to borrow a friend's four-wheeler in 2019 to get out in and out of here, out over the bluffs. But, mm-hmm. yeah, she she lived here for about three months by just packing her supplies in from the ridgetop yeah. where she could drive. Mm-hmm. And she said she learned to take a shower with a gallon of water and learn, and just survived yeah. here to kind of make sure nobody, no pirates came by and... Mm-hmm. Um, messed with the place when the river was also it was basically not that far down the hill that year yeah well back in the 70s uh you and i both kind of disappeared from the local scene uh you went back to santa cruz uh, i did and there's some label that you were some kind of a manufacturing guru with some health product and yeah so yeah such a mystery to me so i went back in 77 and we put sterling and john and i put the band this what we call ourselves our main name in la was space from 66 to 70 then we broke up in santa cruz and then i went back and they had stayed sterling and john and their Mm -hmm. wives and kids Mm -hmm. had stayed in santa cruz and that was We'd gotten together a couple of times over the years. They'd been here once to visit on Amtrak, and Diane and I hitchhiked out there from here twice to keep the keep the embers alive, aglow, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and wanted to do something musically. So in 77, we reformed and started working on new songs and, and old songs, and mm-hmm. we started playing locally and worked our way up, and it happened to coincide with the New Wave era. And because Sterling... Was such er, you know, a literarily oriented writer and lyricist in so many ways, and very sophisticated. Um, while while I was here in Missouri, he was playing Middle Eastern music, traditional mu- Middle Eastern music on clarinet in Santa Cruz mm. for the, with the belly dance scene that happened mm. there in the seventies. So he's a very he reads music, which I don't, and he's just so he started writing these great songs that, that were that could be construed to be in that new wave vein, you know, mm-hmm. or style, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that we never really thought of ourselves as a psychedelic band in, in L.A. in the 60s because we were just doing the songs that we made up, you know, but they were pretty trippy. <laughs> and yeah. then in this, we were pretty kind of, uh, you know, tight and played fast and wrote some funny songs like Sterling's anthem, I Live in the City.
and the city, meaning San Francisco, even though we were in Santa Cruz, which is a mm -hmm. little beach town compared to San Francisco. So we, we had a five-year run with a record deal and a, put out an album and toured Canada and, you know, were local heroes for a couple of years and all of that. And so mm -hmm. that was what we did. 77 to 82. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then after that, I went into a garage part-time with the keyboardist of the humans, David Larstein, and we spent 12 years, the two of us, writing and recording oh, music wow. uh, while I was working full-time. And mm -hmm. in 81, 82, my wife and I both got a job at some little one-man vitamin store. This guy was, I mean, not store, but wholesale. This guy was like selling spirulina tablets out of the trunk of his old Mercedes or something. And we got a foot in the door at this company when there was, you know, 10 people working there or something in, in 70, early 82. Mm -hmm. And I ended up there for 28 years. And when I left, they were, they were, they did 150 million gross sales the year I left. And oh, so wow. what I did is I got asked if I wanted to make the, herb and vitamin supplement tablets and mm -hmm. capsules in-house rather than, you know, contracting that out. And mm -hmm. So we went, kind of like with my house, I'm figuring out how to make it run. Uh, mm -hmm. We just figured it out. Mm -hmm. And that was before YouTube. We, we just like yeah. find old equipment and find somebody who knew how to make it work and mm -hmm. go from there. And so, yeah, I did that for 28 years. Uh, that's the job I retired from. And Living on my social security from that one <laughs> one good job I've where I paid into the system because up until up until then yeah I was pretty much flying under the radar. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, back here in Missouri, what is the Missouri River Cultural Conservancy? Are you related to that at all? Well, yeah, and in I have I have done winter recordings for that concept before and that was something that uh i think who who ha who the heck started that i know mike cooper was a big uh proponent of that which is capturing any kind of uh audio or visual art locally but it had a lot to do with mu local music and mm -hmm. Recording and then sh also shooting a lot of live video of performances at Cooper's Landing mm -hmm. uh, years ago. And then they'd have winter recording sessions where they'd have different local artists every winter go wherever. But I did it in, in, in Cooper's in the store. One mm -hmm. year I went in there and played a few songs and they shot videotape and mm -hmm. did high-end recording. Mike, uh, Mike Robertson was involved in that, Mike Cooper and... And I know it goes way back to, I think it might have been Jerome Wheeler. It's, now it's coming to me. It was Jerome oh, wow. Wheeler. I Jerome had heard comes that Jerome was the original mm -hmm. uh, think deep thinker and mm -hmm. conceptualizer of that mm -hmm. idea from what I remember hearing. Mm -hmm. and so of Jerome goes, was the one that uh, helped Doug Ely and that whole crew save the <laughs> the Missouri River. Yeah, there, yeah, because get he, the wetlands he, yes, and, uh, yes. Eagle Bluff and all. Yeah. And do you know about the documentary that our friend Carl Gerhardt, former MU professor, 
Have you seen that? Yes, Have, yes. Did uh, you Doug, see that uh, at Wild and whatever uh, it was, the Wild and Scenic Film Festival at, at the Blue Note? He played it. He showed it there one year. Well, there was a great article about Doug and that history, and it had a link to the uh, documentary in the Plumbing, Missouri, I believe. Oh, nice. And Doug was on my show a couple of years ago, and we had a link to it because it had come out not too long before that. Right. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful documentary. Wonderful documentary and an amazing example uh, of, I guess it was 89, if I'm not mistaken. And I was just talking to somebody, telling them the story about that, how the way it went is that uh, there was a fish kill in Perchy Creek Mm -hmm. and somebody called Doug Ely up knowing he was a a very environmentally conscious guy and either he or somebody else got some uh, journalists, local journalists, I don't know if it was the Columbia Tribune people or who, but they got some photographs and they Mm -hmm. got a story going about the fish kill and what was the reason for this fish kill in Mm -hmm. Perchy Creek and it was that uh, the city of Columbia had had released untreated sewage. Mm -hmm. And then the whole story about how they had this engineering firm that was for $11 million was going to build them a six-foot diameter pipe from Columbia to the Missouri River so they wouldn't have to kill any fish in the, in the you know, Perchy Creek anymore. They just, just... Kill them all it, from it, the Yeah, it was going to be treated sewage, <laughs> theoretically, but you know how that goes. And so, yeah, this amazing political upheaval took place in this mm-hmm. educational program or, or campaign that Doug and others had woke people up. Yeah. Uh, and it had to do with city council elections and amazingly the voters of the city of columbia voted in favor of having the the bio treatment plant mm-hmm. which is now world renowned wetlands mm-hmm. with wildlife galore eagle bluffs i think 98% vote uh was for it and jerome wheeler had written that catchy little song yeah. about doo doo and uh... yeah yeah <laughs> yeah 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 yes indeed i got to be part of a little bit part of um, that documentary because Doug and I go back to the early 70s. We got to be friends, I think, out at the Round Oak Hippie Commune farm there, uh, Hearst John's land, Yeah, which is now, you know, it's Turkey Where Bob Dyer had built uh, the log. Uh, Railroad cabin. cabin. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's how far Doug and I went back. And well, good. Carl Gerhardt and I became friends I don't know how many years ago that was. I think it's like 11 years ago. He and his mm-hmm. wife, Dana and Marnie and I were, are really good friends. And they just live up here in a really cool timber frame house, beautiful river view on, on Easley Ridge. And he's a frog scientist. And I, I've been jamming live in the swamp with frogs and recording the, the, the uh, mutual respect mode happenings for... Huh. About thirty some years now. So oh, when wow. I frogs, I'm I had no crazy idea. into frogs and <laughs> Carl's. That's his whole life. I mean, he's huh. a very heavy duty wildlife expert and videographer of some repute. Besides being an amazing, you know, biologic, you know, biology scientist and and teacher and professor, going back to the mid seventies at MU. Um, I think he's a, might even be a professor emeritus at this mm-hmm. point. I don't know, but he's 
Yeah, so I think I connected he he and Doug Ely because I knew Doug and I think I got a hold of Doug and because Carl had decided he wanted to do this documentary about Eagle oh. Bluffs because he loves Eagle Bluffs and he's been mm-hmm. shooting whatever's the highest you know quality of video that's going on in the day, mm-hmm. including drone mm-hmm. video technology. But he's been doing that at Eagle Bluffs pretty religiously for years and mm-hmm. so it was just a natural fit for him to go back into the history books and kind of tell the story of how local activism turned the tide from a really crappy expensive non-eco-friendly mm-hmm. choice mm-hmm. to people having the sense you got to really be proud of, of the voters of Columbia for mm-hmm. what they did and mm-hmm. and it worked yeah. even though they were building that thing in the flood of 93 hit and it messed stuff up really bad that they weren't deterred. They went ahead and did it and it's worked really well all mm-hmm. these years. And it's, it's an example of a uh, bio sewage treatment, you know, which is a, a cool thing that not everywhere can do that because <laughs> you need certain conditions and you need water and this and that, but all of the, uh, challenges that were overcome both, both in getting, the citizenry behind that that plan and and making that decision, but then convincing some of the old school folks, like the head of um, you know the the city's guys that were running, uh, you know the utilities and the and mm. the, the water department and all that stuff. It's amazing how a bunch of them saw the light mm-hmm. and realized that you know, and and of course they had the the big money people on the other side. This high-end energy firm with a fancy name like Blackpool Industries <laughs> LLC. I don't know. I'm making that up. Sure. But they were, you know, they had their, they had the, whether they had lobbyists or not, they were still, they were doing the the PR program to sell this to Columbia because mm-hmm. it was a big deal. And, mm-hmm. and even if, you know, even if they spent all that money, there was a possibility that down the road they were going to have to do something even more, you know, cost incurring mm-hmm. actions were going to need to be taken to keep this whole mm-hmm. thing going and it was just not the right the right uh way to go in terms of water mm-hmm. quality mostly well, one of the keys that was handed to Doug was the rules that they weren't following on doing an environmental um, impact study impact yes. study ahead of time and so he presents that to the city council and there wasn't anything they could do but follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. And Doug that opened the door and opened gave door. some time for, yeah. And then the people that we know, I mean, you know, I always thought Columbia was pretty incredible because there's a whole culture here of MU-educated and sometimes MU-employed people mm-hmm. that are very eco-conscious, very environmentally aware and are willing to walk the walk and mm-hmm. and, and do what's right. And, and mm-hmm. the, the, the hills are filled with these kinds of <laughs> smart people that I know. And that sort of kind of, a, you know, it's like hip academia connected people that came to Columbia or probably more than came from out of you know, this area to go to MU, but then 
stuck around and, mm-hmm. and they populated especially Boone County with a lot of really smart yeah. aware uh, conscious people that that was part of that mix I think even back uh, when this political fight was going on about the, the pipeline uh, well what I'm happy to know is that you Eric guys yes. can talk can talk his head off just are give still a mic. part of that community yes and, I'm and thankful. thankful and I know you guys you and Marsha had come and see me had remember you coming and talking to me and saying you came to see me play live at Chili Fest in Lupus, which is where Doug Ely was the mayor for 17 years. Right. And in California, I would, I tell my friends, yeah, my friend, my old buddy's the mayor of this town. (laughs) And they had like 39 people as the population back then. And it's still hovering probably around 30 something, but that was a legendary annual event for all those years. And, I was lucky to, if I hadn't known Doug, I probably wouldn't have got a chance to play there. But I, I played a few years there. And well, there are some places store. that yeah. you played that we haven't even been able to talk about because we're out of time. But <laughs> that went fast. Oh, yeah. What a delight. What a delight to well, catch up. Well, thanks for letting me. You know, I'm kind of cooped up here. I don't get out. I don't get to town. Well, heck, I thought <laughs> going to Menards was like the social event of the week or the month. Well, I was just going for some plumbing supplies, and I, I was like, got home and thought, boy, I just had the best time of my life. When it gets to that point, you know, you know you're kind of focused down on the minor details of reality. Thanks again, Eric. This oh, thanks. Been... It was all my pleasure. Just thanks for... Uh, Letting me open the floodgates and just yeah. blather on. Marty said, you should give him your bio, my music bio, a copy of that. So, friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. So please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and talk to you soon. Thank you.